The Start On Demand. On demand. The province has come out and basically said, surprise, Concordia Hospital's ER is converting to an urgent care center on Monday. This Monday, June 3rd, we'll talk to the head of the nurses union to see if they are ready. We'll meet a Winnipeg author who has written a book about our city's wonderful urban forest, and she reveals we have a staggering number of trees here. We'll talk to our friend and colleague Philly from Power Mornings with Philly, Joe and Kirby on Power 97 about the walk for arthritis, which is on Sunday at Assiniboine Park because his son Jack has juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. I'm Brett McGarry alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Thursday, May 30th podcast for The Start. Mackling and McGarry and almost McNabb, not quite in the studio yet. In any moment, we'll hear her thundering down the hall. How can somebody so tiny make so much noise when she moves? Well, it's the shoes, right? It's the heels. Oh, no, she's sauntering. Yeah, it's just a light, light, I wouldn't even call that a trot. It's just a very... Quite elegant, actually. I actually feel like the clock like lost 30 seconds out there. I was like walking towards here, then I got Jeff Courier and I started talking, and... Thank you. Time just disappears. Oh, you got a sheet, you're going to tell us what we're going to do today. And then we can tell our listeners. Well, speaking of noise, she was quiet this morning, uh, as opposed to usually running down the hall. And by the way, that's not a criticism. I don't know how women wear heels and run in heels. No my kidding. God, I would shatter my, I would, I would roll my ankles in a second in heels. But we got a text message about an interesting text about noise. Yes, and we'd be curious to hear if anybody else was uh, rattled out of bed just after 4 o'clock this morning. 4.17, we get a text message. CPR alarm clock. CPR train rolls to a stop through Royalwood and Island Lakes at 4 a.m. with horns stuck for 15 minutes. Oh my God. Waking up the whole section of the city. Ugh. Hopefully you were able to get back to sleep. Mm. Would like to know if you were affected by that. In uh, my neighborhood, the train passes through just after three. And oh I used no. to find it so comforting. Like it'd be that kind of, as you're slipping into your deep REM back in the day when I didn't wake up at three in the morning or 3.15. But now it comes just before my alarm goes off. And so it annoys me because I'm like, I know I have like four more minutes, which as we all know, the four minutes is like, or three minutes or whatever. You're like, I'm Gold. not getting up. That's right. Until this alarm goes off. And now that horn is woken me up. Is and I don't want to be up. Is this a daily thing? Every day. Really? Mm-hmm. Like clockwork. Like I wouldn't say it's exactly at 3.08 or whatever it is every day, but in and around 3 a.m. Wow. The train. And, and I'm probably a kilometer or two from the tracks, but you can hear it. I had a friend who lived in Armstrong, B.C., and I would stay over at his place every once in a while. But the first time I stayed at his house, scared the living you-know-what out of me. He lives, his house is about 30 feet from a train track, and it's rural enough that the train does not slow down. Oh, my God. And it roars past his house. It literally shook me out of bed. I caught myself, and I was... Um, <clears throat> might have had a couple beverages, and it completely disoriented me, and I literally thought the world was coming to an end. It was horrifying. Yeah, that would be scary. <laughs> I got no warning in advance. So uh, getting that 3 o'clock train every night. Yeah, like I said, it far used enough, to be comforting, you're, you're, but now it's you're, not. You're far enough away. Yeah, it's not scaring yeah. me or anything. I've been I've been in places like you're talking about. That I camped in Kenora once and the train was so close and it kept you up. And then it would get the the wolves howling so you'd have the train go by <laughs> and, and, I, and you'd lay there and be like just dogs, they're just dogs, they're just dogs. And they're and really you're far like, away. And you they're know really they're not. Away. They're wolves. They must be wolves. So we're actually going to have a conversation about noise at 645 because Edmonton is getting ready to hand out $250 fines for to drivers of vehicles that are too loud, so motorcycles, those big jacked up trucks, or you know a car that's been souped up, 
or what like, have you. Do they remove mufflers? Is that a thing? Like, what is the uh, how, what's happening in the car when it goes by? I think they put like this little horn thing on the back of their exhaust system. Some of the smaller uh, imported cars, they like to do that to give them some sort of personality. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure what the what the reasoning for this is, if you know, 780-6868. Yeah, no, I, I, I asked because it was a classic thing. Just the other day, I screamed at this car going by like, what is your deal? With my fist <laughs> in the air. Um, and my kids are like, why is it so loud? And I was like, it doesn't have a muffler. And I was like, I don't know if that's true. Like, I don't know what the, <laughs> you're like, stop sharing things with children because they're supposed to, they're supposed to be learning. There could maybe not be a, a, a muffler, but. A buddy of mine, actually, uh, he did this. He had a. Uh, it was a Chevy S10 Extreme. <laughs> oh, of course, the Extreme. Yeah, it was so a much better. nice truck. Oh, yeah. It was a you could do them nice up. It nicely. was a really a sporty truck. Mm. It was nice. It was a black truck. It was sharpened. He added, he put some sort of accessory on. So he still had his muffler. He just put some kind of amplifier on the back. On, yeah. Or so wherever to make it louder. Yeah, on his exhaust to make it a little bit louder. So I don't know what it's called. <laughs> But yeah, you can put some sort of thing on the muffler to make it more buzzy or or beefy. Uh, on the little cars, it's as you re- referenced, Greg, like the little the cars you might see in the Fast and the Furious. Yeah, like Subarus and the uh, uh, and some of the Toyotas. And, <laughs> and the there's someone Hondas, listening to us. Civic like, Nation, you know those cars. And they're buzzy and they they've got those parts and uh, yeah. Well, I don't know anything about cars. We're all just looking at each other, like, like... trying to, like, (laughs) you know what I mean. And we all know what each other means. We need to uh, call up Click and Clack from NPR. They do that show about uh, cars. They did it for years. (laughs) The Tappet Brothers and just find out, hey, hey, guys, what's the deal with the whirring and the buzzing and the humming and the... Yeah, and And we're all looking at Greg like he has the... Greg's the guru. I have no idea. Greg will know the answer to this. Both Brett and I are like, Greg? (laughs) One of my neighbors has... A Camaro convertible, like 2018, 2019 Camaro convertible. And he's rolling basically, like I know he's not even touching the gas coming around the bay the other day. And you can just hear it just growling. And it just kind of has that little shimmy and that shake. And it's just like, oh, she's in that car with him right now. Actually, I'd like to be driving that car because there's just something about the way a Camaro, a Mustang, one of those muscle cars, the way they just purr, it's just intoxicating. Yeah, a buddy of mine had a Mustang in 1995 and he had the the 5.0, I guess. The the vanilla ice version. Yeah, he had the the big... (laughs) The big engine in that car, and it, whenever he would fire it up, it would just rumble. And yeah, it was it was kind of soothing, but you also felt like you were you felt powerful just being in no question that about automobile. It. And a big date on the calendar now, which is June third. That's when major changes will happen at Concordia Hospital. We know its ER was scheduled to close at the end of June, but then officials decided that closure shouldn't happen. And instead, Concordia is being converted to an urgent care facility. With everyone learning yesterday that conversion is happening Monday, which is four days from now. The nurses union has already expressed its concern about the timeline and a system Already struggling with major changes, not to mention this escalating meth crisis. Well, now it's sharing exclusively with CGOB new numbers that will perhaps shed some light on the challenges staff throughout the city are facing. The Manitoba Nurses Union says over the last five years, the number of injury claims nurses have made to WCB have climbed 311%. So back in 2013, they used to see about one claim a month. Now they're seeing well over one physical or mental health injury claim per week. There were 70, 72 last year alone. Darlene Jackson is the president of the Nurses Union and joins us now. Good morning, Darlene. Good morning. So we know the system's in flux. We know there's this meth crisis, but what's behind these claims being made to the Workers' Compensation Board? Well, I, I think it's really important to realize that this is just a snapshot of the overall issue, that, that only a small number of nurses claim uh, there are many, many uh, verbal assaults that happen that are not claimed. So this, we know that violence is escalating in healthcare, partly uh, due to the meth crisis, but also uh, we believe it's um, a lot has to do with the consolidation of the healthcare system. How does the consolidation play into this, Darlene? 
Well, we know that uh, patient volumes are rising in uh, the tertiary hospitals. We know that wait times are longer due to the um, lack of beds in the facility. We know patients are laying in emergency departments for hours, sometimes days, waiting for a bed, which causes a backup, which causes longer wait times. Uh, Patients are getting uh, more frustrated, families are getting more frustrated, and tempers are getting short. So that is one factor that is uh, affecting the violence in our our, uh, system. I know uh, you had to file an access to information, if I understand, to get these numbers. Is there anything indicating in terms of what kind of claims we're talking about? Are they being assaulted physically? What what kind of anecdotes are you hearing in terms of how bad some of those assaults might be? Give us a bit more if you can. Well, we know that they're, um, they're physical assaults and um, the video released from uh, HSC some time ago uh, showing the nurse uh, being physically assaulted. That's that's an extreme case, but there are many, many uh, physical assaults where uh, a nurse may be slapped or punched or spa- uh, spit on is another big thing. Uh, harassment, uh, th- verbal threats, they're all, uh, they're all out there. We were talking to a member of the WPS uh, just in the last week or so about the idea of getting spat on and and the protocols that go along with that. I can imagine that nurses have to go through similar protocols. What happens if a nurse gets uh, spit upon? Well, um, and and it's the same as any blood or body fluid. You there's precautions you have to take um, because of the also the rise in uh, in uh, HIV and and uh, hepatitis, etc. Uh, there's protocols that nurses have to follow uh, if they've been exposed to blood or body fluids. So that's um, that. It would be the same for the for the WPS as it is for nurses that we follow the same protocols. We've got a lot going on in our healthcare system. Monday, the new date for the conversion of the ER at Concordia to turn into an urgent care facility. What's happening today for staff? Are they getting the notices about where they're supposed to be. I know it was several weeks ago that many were already moving to their new positions, thinking that the ER was going to close overall. Is there new messaging coming out today or new things that they have to do to prepare as staff members? We, we've we had absolutely no details. We learned of the decision yesterday when everyone else did. Uh, we've had absolutely no details about uh how these staff are are going to manage what we're going to do to rewrite history because you're right many nurses had already made plans to go to other facilities or go to other units all of that has to be uh um, that big jigsaw puzzle has to be taken apart and put back together again and we have no details yet so do we have a situation then where here it is thursday may 30th and coming up on june 3rd there are employees that don't know where they're reporting to work well, they know that they're going to be at the Concordia Hospital. However, the, the long-term plans are, are very vague. We have, we have no idea how we're going to go back and rewrite history on this. We're still waiting for some decisions to be made that uh, we're waiting, and, and hopefully we're going to hear sometime this week what the plan is. Darlena, I'm trying to find something positive out of these changes. Um, one of the one of the billboards I noticed on the way in the other morning uh, was very simple. It says, "Need stitches? Go to urgent care." Is the public starting to heed the public uh, service messages with regard to which which facilities are appropriate for which ailments? I, I think that there there's lots of uh, sort of advertising out there to tell people, you know, where to go when they need the service. However, when we look at the population around the uh, Health Sciences Centre, uh, with the closing of the Misericordia Urgent Care, much of that population has no choice but to go to the emergency at HSC. There is no way that they're going to get down to the Victoria Hospital, to the urgent care. Uh, I suggested months ago putting a shuttle bus in because if you have if you're living on a fixed income, there's no way you can afford to pay a cab to get down to an urgent care. So they are still presenting to, to the um, emergency. They have no choice. I think a lot of people raised their eyebrows when they saw that Misericordia Urgent Care was one of the closures and one of the changes being made. And I would suggest that there are a lot of people who still look at that with trepidation and say, boy, that was probably one of the shuffles that could have been done without. That absolutely was. And there's still a lot of concern as to how those uh, individuals living in the core area access service. 
Darlene Jackson, president of the Nurses Union, joining us live on CJOB. Darlene, thank you for this. Thanks very much. On Saturday, outside CF Polo Park, motorcycle ride for dad. In this context, wonderful sound. It was exhilarating, it was amazing, but imagine you're trying to sleep like last night. I live on Provence, and it felt like the ride for dad had resumed. It's just motorcycle after motorcycle zooming by at around 9, 9.30, don't know where they were going, but every time it came just close enough to fall asleep, one would rev the engine and zoom by, and I kind of thought, come on. Well, Edmonton is doing something interesting, Greg. One of our listeners actually pointed this out, loyal listener Jeff. And there's a pilot project in Edmonton where they are getting ready to hand out $250 fines to drivers of noisy vehicles if they get over 85 decibels. So they're not just targeting motorcycles. This isn't a, hey, let's dump on motorcycle segment. It's motorcycles and the big jacked up trucks or right. the souped up cars, whatever. And we're wondering what you think. Yeah, and I think Winnipeg police have the power to do this here as well. To You know, if you're too noisy... I don't know what the threshold is, but it got us thinking about overall, is this a rite of passage for summer? Do you enjoy sitting on a patio, whether it's on Provence, Corden, or Osborne, and hearing the roar of a Mustang, a Harley Davidson, or anything else? Or is it just nope. annoying? I hate it. A motorcycle is my least favorite town in the world. I'd rather listen to a, a room full of babies crying or dogs barking or something like that. <laughs> oh, I, don't know. I cannot stand a, a motorcycle. Room full of babies crying. Ugh, it's just it's it's the worst. I I don't know why they can't make those things quieter. I don't like, mind. What is the point of it? I don't mind motorcycles. For me, it's uh, when people put on those I call them, what fart cannons <laughs> <laughs> on their cars. I, I don't understand why, why 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 do that. Like they pay to put that on. Well, it's a look at me thing. They, yeah, they think. Uh, well, I won't I, even get into I, what they think they're accomplishing, but it, <laughs> well, the, that's the what mind we want to truly do here. boggles. Like, what do you think they're trying to get to? They're just trying to show that they're a big shot or something like that. They should seek uh, mental <laughs> wellness. Uh, they need a psychiatrist, is what I'm saying. <laughs> that is insane. If, that, if you think that people are like, oh my god, that guy's car was so loud. He's so cool. There's not one person on the planet that thinks that. No, and it's, it's just insane. It's actually it's insane. kind of Same. scary. The motorcycle, I don't know if it bothers me. It's more the vehicles when they come zipping around the corner or revving their engines and they're going like 20, but it sounds like they're going 120 <laughs> because that's what the point is, I think, to sound big or fast or it I don't like know what. clear cutting a forest but or it's, something. It's but ridiculous. But it's scary and I, like, I, I promise you every time I go, ah, and then I <laughs> shake my fist. Like, I'm just so annoyed. Like, I just get really, really pent up and frustrated. You can get a fine for that in the city, but the police said last year they had never... Had, they hadn't find anyone in all of 2018. I mean, how do you... I've got weekends off, place? Winnipeg Police. I will <laughs> hand out fines for you. Just get in touch with me. I'll do it for free. Well, <laughs> you Give know me what? the power. Did you text in earlier at about 617? No. Under an assumed name or number? <laughs> the old thrush, mufflers, etc., etc. is nothing but total, totally irritating. I think the people that have these noise machines have... Nothing personality-wise, so they have to be noticed by their car noise. Otherwise, they would feel invisible. Guess being considered a self-centered, hey, look at me, idiot, is better than nothing. So that individual agrees with you. It it just makes me roll my eyes. You know, whenever I hear that, I just go, whatever. Like, it's just like, what what are you, a complete clown? That's what I think. On the car, any kind of, like, motorbike or... If if, if you're going down a place where you know that there's patios and people having dinner or whatever, or, you know, a a nice place where people are having a walk, and you're just driving down there and revving your engine, making sure everybody looks at me with your fancy car, I don't know. I, 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 I totally agree with you, Jeff. I just, I can't stand it. It's like a character flaw that just drives me nuts with people. Yeah. You know, hey, look at me. And, and I agree. Zero personality. And I, Why do you have to do something like that? Another listener, though, has texted in saying, coming from someone who's had way too many close calls, loud bikes save lives. And I know Brittany Greenslade had gone down to Corden last summer mm-hmm. to talk to bikers because this becomes an issue every year for people, the noises. And that was what they heard overwhelmingly from a lot of the, the motorcycle, motorcycle has to be seven that, times louder than a car that, otherwise people won't know it's coming that the loud motorcycle no. the louder it is if it's coming around the corner it's not as loud as a car and it's nimble it's more nimble than a car because it moves in and out more quickly and so the noise could be a safety thing was kind of the the cell that's an amazing stretch <laughs> 
first. I don't buy that for half a second. You've uh, you've said something that <laughs> rings a bell with a first time texter. Yes, one hundred percent. Stop the noise. It's nonstop in Charleswood on Sir William Clement Parkway. Fully agree. Mental wellness and <laughs> attention getters. Yeah, there there is a context. Another another example of where I didn't mind it. And I, do they still do like where people go up and down Portage Avenue on oh, Sunday? Yeah, Sunday, Sunday yeah, yeah. Night? Yeah. yeah, it's still a thing. Okay, yes. where people put lawn chairs out on Portage Avenue and watch all the cars and bikes and trucks go by. That's cool. I used to like. There's 500 my, TV channels with quality program on every single channel. Watch that. Don't set up a launcher to watch cars. Give me a break. Experiencing thing live is fun, Jeff. Come on. So when you go out for a show, yeah. They complain about traffic Monday to Friday, but on Sunday it's entertainment. That's insane, too. (laughs) You know, it's like anything. It all depends on which side you're sitting on it. When you're you're out there and you went to see it, it's enjoyable. If you're trying to fall asleep, you're like angry about it. Winkler Parade is what it is. Yeah. And I used to like it. My buddies and I would go out and drive in it. We didn't have fancy cars. We just liked seeing the action. Although there was one time where I remember, I can't remember where I was going, but I had to go up Portage Avenue on Sunday, and then I got there and thought, I forgot, oh no, it's Sunday night, and it took me forever to get where I wanted to go, and my car was filthy, and I was just kind of embarrassed to be there, uh, because people are looking <laughs> people at me. People were staring at you, because they thought there was a show happening. Because right? yeah. you stuck out like a sore thumb. That's but I don't mind the noise in that context, but yeah, when you're sitting on a patio trying to have a conversation, and a bike comes by and rev, 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 or someone with a truck... With a big fat muffler, somebody texted us a picture of their muffler uh, saying, as loud as can be. With And there's a sticker that says, Prius repellent <laughs> above oh, the exhaust. <laughs> well, I guess I'm in the minority here. I kind of I like it. Brings the city alive. I think over-obnoxious anything, over-the-top <laughs> anything is too much, but I... I kind of dig dig the rumbling and the uh, and the, and the loud exhaust. I just don't like obnoxious. Yeah, I don't mind it t- a little bit if it's like once. If you're driving on the street and you you rev the engine, yeah, that's okay. But if you're doing it repeatedly and then you yeah. speed down the street to show the world how awesome your vehicle is, go away. Don't squeal your tires. That's a whole other. You level. should pull out your like bike bell after that and be like ding ding. ding, 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 ding. Let us know what you think, 204-780-6868. We also have polls up on our Instagram story, Twitter, and Facebook. Way in there. We start this hour with alcohol and drugs, which are sending more Canadians to hospital than heart attack and stroke patients combined. More than heart and stroke patients combined, and that's according to Canadian Institute for Health Information. It found that more than 400 Canadians were being hospital for harm caused by alcohol and drugs every single day. And 40% of those Canadians who landed in hospital because of substance abuse also have a mental health condition like anxiety or depression. Kathleen Morris is the VP of Research and Analysis for the Canadian Institute for Health Information and joins us now. Good morning, Kathleen. Good morning. So more patients than heart attack and stroke combined. What does that say about our alcohol abuse in this country? I think it brings awareness to how widespread some of the harms are from uh, alcohol and drugs and uh, the impact that they have on the healthcare system, but also the impact that they have on, on the patients themselves and their families and their communities. We're not talking car accidents or alcohol-impaired accidents. We're talking straight just liver diseases or issues like that. Is that right? Well, so it includes a wide number of things. So it would include things like poisonings. Uh, from alcohol uh, or drugs, um, uh, trauma, if, um, you know, for example, if, if you were uh, diagnosed as an impaired driver uh, and you hurt yourself, that would, that would be counted. Um, but also, uh, as you pointed out, it can be the cumulative impacts of lifetime use, uh, like cirrhosis of the liver from a lifetime of heavy drinking. So Kathleen, we're having this conversation surrounding uh, crystal meth and the impact it's having on our community. And, and you often get this situation where people say, well, lock them up, lock up the drug users and, and lock up the, the drug dealers. We'll take the dealers out of it for a moment. Is drugs and alcohol a social issue, a criminal issue, or is it a health issue? Uh, so the way we're looking at it is as a health issue, um, that it's uh, a lot of these um, substances are quite addictive uh, and they need, uh, I think, and they often become a, a chronic health issue for an individual. And I guess we're seeing um, that you could think of uh, people um, 
who have substance abuse issues the same as you would people with any other chronic condition uh, and that they need the health help of the healthcare system. Is, is this self-medication to a certain extent and the idea that the, the drugs will take whether it's a physical pain that they're not otherwise treating or emotional pain that they're not otherwise treating, they're self-medicating? I think that's a piece of it. Uh, you know, that um, what we found is that 40% of the Canadians who are hospitalized for harm caused by drugs and alcohol also had a mental health disorder. And sometimes um, a mental disorder that's poorly treated can lead people to self-medicate uh, with drugs or alcohol. What's the picture in Manitoba? We talk about 400 Canadians being hospitalized for alcohol and drugs every single day. How's that looking here in our province? Yeah, so what we did is we, we took a look at about half of all of the um, hospitalizations are due to alcohol-related um, substances, and uh, that's across the country. And the number's a little higher in Manitoba. It's about 61%. Uh, and there's a total of 4,662 hospital stays overall uh, for um, drugs and alcohol-related harm. So how do we get ourselves out of this? Uh, is it a lack of programs uh, going back to uh, mental wellness issues, uh, drug and or alcohol abuse programs? How do we get our ways out of this so that we can get these numbers uh, a little bit more uh, in balance with, with, with other issues? Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of different routes uh, to that. Some of them uh, is trying to uh, you know, start much earlier with uh, prevention and promotion and early intervention uh, so that people don't develop a problem. Um, But a lot of it is, um, and some of it is just getting the balance right between the services in hospitals and the services in the community, like uh, uh, peer support or counseling or harm reduction. Uh, But as we all know, substance use um, has a much um, broader reason of, um, of influences. So it, you know, differences in income or education or um, personal trauma, uh, intergenerational trauma can make a difference. Um, the actual drugs that are available um, make a difference. And, uh, and some of the policies around how easy it is to get uh, legal uh, drugs or alcohol, such as, you know, minimum ages or pricing hours of operation, those are all um, things that people could look at in terms of uh, trying to get their hands around this issue. Kathleen Morris is the VP of Research and Analysis for the Canadian Institute for Health Information. Joining us live on CJOB, Kathleen, thank you for this. Thank you. Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. Greg, what happened last night? A couple dozen volunteers welcomed over 150 young people from the inner city into the Duckworth Centre at the University of Winnipeg for the 11th annual Hoops from the Heart. Over its lifetime, this event has delivered well over 1,000 basketballs into the hands of young people, served an equal number of meals, and put 1,000 or more brand-new T-shirts on the backs of kids who gather to watch current and former university basketball players give back to their community in two exhibition games. The kids even get to shoot baskets at halftime. There are several corporate entities which go above and beyond to make this event happen, but it all started as the brainchild of a man who regularly emails us here at the start. He is one of those community leaders who quietly goes about his business with very little fanfare. Dennis Bayomi has been delivering basketballs to young people in the inner city for some time now. Since 2006, we started basketballs for inner city kids. And uh, today we give out basketballs to every graduating grade six student in the inner city school district. So that's 12 or 13 schools, five or 600 basketballs. And it's run through the U of M now. Lots of people say, why basketball? Well, basketball is the sport next to hockey that I grew up as a kid playing. And I can still remember playing basketball outside in the parking lot at Gordon Bell, my old high school. And uh, although I wasn't much of a player back then, I was pretty short, and that was a limitation back in the 70s, I still play. And uh, this is my, uh, well, I won't say how old I am, but I've been playing for a few decades now. <laughs> I don't know if I even should be speaking to you being a Daniel Mack grad, yeah, but, okay. <laughs> but, you know, uh, uh, the, the inner city schools sort of stick together when it all comes down to it. Absolutely. We have our rivalries <laughs> at the time and at different times, but when it comes right down to it, 
we uh, we really stick up for one another. Well, Panthers and Maroons, yeah, we stick up for one another. We've actually been talking to the alumni of Daniel to see if we can start some rivalries to, to fundraise for our uh, respective schools. And uh, that's just a fun friendship kind of a rivalry. So, yeah, we definitely stick up for each other. So basketball is one of those sports where you need a pair of shoes and a ball to play. Well, you know what? I've seen where you don't even need a pair of shoes and you don't even need a ball. You can invent those things. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen players go without any footwear at all. So quite literally, you just need something and something else to put that first object through the hole. And uh, But yeah, a pair of sneakers and a basketball, and you can play by yourself. You can play with a buddy. You can play with uh, nine other people and have a full court game. So it's a great sport for just by yourself or with a whole bunch of other players. The one thing I've always loved and appreciated about this event and what got me really keen to get involved was the fact that you've got kids from the inner city that might otherwise never have been inside a university building. They come in, it now is not a foreign place to them. It's something that if they come back year after year or even if they don't come back for eight or nine years, maybe they come for an orientation, it will be somewhat familiar. And to see kids that look like them that are now adults playing basketball that i don't know there's something special about that am, am i fabricating uh, anything here Dennis? no no that's exactly right greg uh when dr pierce started this event that was one of his visions that this would get a lot of the inner city kids who don't have an opportunity otherwise to come to the university of manitoba come to the university of winnipeg and that's in fact what's happening and some of the kids 11 years ago 10 11 years ago are now adults and uh, some of them are graduating in fact from the University of Manitoba or Winnipeg. So, you know, it does work and it really means a lot when kids can be introduced at a young age to places like this. And through basketball, it makes it a lot of fun. Dennis, thanks for everything you've done for the inner city. Thanks what you do for the community and I appreciate bumping India tonight. Hey, thanks so much, GMAC. It's been a pleasure. Hoops from the Heart has in place two annual scholarships for inner-city athletes at both the University of Winnipeg and at the U of M. What's going on with uh, selling Winnipeg? Well, you know how much I, I love the city. I think we all do. We're, we're proud of where we live uh, in spite of some of the challenges we have right now. It's Tourism Week right now in Canada. And we're joined by Economic Development Winnipeg President and CEO, Dana Spiring, who's in Toronto. And Dana, what does Tourism mean? Tur- tourism Week mean for you? Well, you know, Tourism Week is a great chance for us to celebrate all of the great things that are happening in our tourism industry. So we kicked off the week with the Tourism Awards on Monday, and uh, we've got some you know, great events uh, planned for different venues around the city. We're doing a mascot invasion. Uh, and, and it's a good chance for us just to highlight to everyone in Winnipeg, you know, the magnitude of the tourism industry. I'm sorry, I just got stuck on mascot invasion. Could you explain that? <laughs> we've had a couple of events over the last couple of years where we've had all of the Winnipeg mascots go down to the airport and, and greet some people that are coming into the city and you know, you get to you get to hug all of our different mascots, and, and it's a lot of fun for everybody. I got to hand it to the uh, Winnipeg Airports Authority because when I come home from somewhere and I see those blue bomber signs and those jet signs, being a yeah. big sports fan that I am, uh, that's one thing. But there's just something; it just gives me this feeling of pride. Canada's number one fans, and and fueled by passion, whatever the the slogan might be attached to the sign, Dana. I know it's something small in the in the greater sense, but it does have an effect on someone with like me it it must have effect on on other people for sure it does and, and i'm not even sure it's a small thing you know we walk into our airport and whether it's you know the hug rug or all the other uh you know banners and signs that are around you can feel really good about people getting their first glimpse of winnipeg whether you live there or whether you're visiting in our airport and and it's you know, I'm reminded of it more and more often. I, I had to travel to Toronto, and I can tell you I don't get the same warm, fuzzy feeling when I land in Pearson. So I, I think it is a big thing, and, and uh, you know, it's a great place for us to give visitors the first welcome to our city. Tell us about the Bring It Home program and the philosophy behind that and, and what we're trying to do when it comes to not just bringing business here but selling ourselves so that more people want to come here for whether it's tourism or conventions or other, Dana. 
Yeah. Well, we know that when people get a chance to see and feel Winnipeg, they are far more likely to want to come back. They're going to want to bring their family and friends back. And, you know, if they're coming to visit, they're going to think about bringing their business to us. So one of the big drivers of our economy are bringing meetings and conventions to Winnipeg. So a lot of Winnipeggers don't often think about that. But, you know, when the convention center is full, when people are coming here to have meetings or or group events, that's a big driver for our economy. They leave a lot of dollars behind, you know, when they when they go back to their hometowns. And and our staff, we have a we have a sales team that is dedicated to going and finding those meetings and conventions and finding things that would be a good fit for Winnipeg that, you know, will allow us to show off some of the great things that we have to offer, but at the same time provide a really great meeting venue for various organizations. And we our, our Bring It Home program takes that idea one step further. So in, instead of our sales staff, you know, going and, and finding some of these events, we are going to community leaders and business leaders to say, hey, if you're involved with an a association or if you have a national meeting that you attend every year or if there's an event that you typically go to, why don't you bring that home? Why don't you bring that to Winnipeg and let us help you? So that's sometimes a daunting thing when, when you're at a you know part of an association and you know it's, it's a little bit intimidating to raise your hand and say, hey, I'll host the next one. Um, but but our staff at Tourism Winnipeg make that easy. We make the work a little bit easier. And so it's a great opportunity to, one, contribute to our economy in a real and meaningful way, but also to bring people that you know to our great city and showcase all that Winnipeg has to offer. Dane, I was talking to Sandy Schindelman, oh, must have been about a year and a half ago, and he used the number of about $1,500 per day per delegate as a a driver and in terms of a number that that goes into the economy. And it's all well and good to have a world-class and first-rate convention centre and uh, to have uh, those physical amenities to host the meeting, but you have to have the restaurants, you have to have the hotels, and you have to have the shopping as well in order to draw yeah, exactly. to draw that money out of attendees pockets and wallets yeah absolutely right and and you know we have a culinary scene in winnipeg right now that is being talked about across the country so we've got great restaurants people are hearing about that and, and they're excited to go do that not only are our restaurants hotels benefiting but you know people when they have an afternoon of their conference they're going to go down and check out the forks or they're going to go to the museum for human rights and see what all the fuss is about or or take a you know trip to assiniboine park so all of those things are, are really impactful. And, you know, when we host big meetings and conventions, we try really hard to make sure that they have off-site events. So maybe they do a dinner, um, you know, at the Museum for Human Rights, or maybe we take them on a walking tour around the Forks, you know, and march them back up to the convention center or what have you. We want to make sure that they get a glimpse of Winnipeg because, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of our city. And I think once people get a chance to see it, they're going to want to see more and they're going to want to come back. I'm happy we're having this conversation because, you know, I think sometimes we can get lost in the different headlines. We've been talking, say, for example, this week, just even about, you know, meth numbers and the meth crisis is still on the rise and violent crime in our city and and homicide records that we're worried about breaking. And and while those are all very real truths, there's also other things that we need to turn around and take a look at and maybe even remind ourselves sometimes. Because, like I said, I think you do get lost in that sometime and you don't you see the ugly rather than the, the beauty. Yeah, it's, it's, that's so true, and it's really easy to get bogged down in, in all those issues, and, and those are all riddles that we have to solve, right? But I was saying at the Tourism Awards on Monday, you know, I, so often I'm involved in economic development meetings or, you know, having to convince companies why they should come to Winnipeg or, or dealing with our various levels of government. And on Monday, I got to walk into the Tourism Awards at the Met, and, you know, I'm there to celebrate all of the Winnipeg attractions and the employees that are at our hotels that, that make tourists you know, feel welcome and, and really want to come back to our city. And it's it's one of those few events of the year the mayor and I were discussing that, you know, you just leave feeling so great because there is so much happening in our tourism industry. And I, I think sometimes Winnipegers don't don't understand that there is a big number of tourists that, that come for their vacation to our city. And so everything that we can do to, to make their experience better is, is, one, an economic driver, but it also continues that momentum and continues to have people wanting to come back and wanting to experience it. And, you know, that leads to more restaurants and more hotels and, and more attractions. So it, it's a cycle, and, and, and we're really proud of, of all the work that's happening in Winnipeg right now. I don't care if it's a corner store, a restaurant, or a city's tourism industry. You can build it one customer at a time, and Dana, I know you, you do that. Thank you so much for taking time with us this morning, as always. Thank you, guys. Enjoy the sunshine. 
Dana Aspiring joining us live on 680 CJOB from Economic Development Winnipeg. And uh, I, I just want to say thanks to her on the air for the energy that she oh. brings to the city of Winnipeg and the passion. Uh, she's like the, I feel like she's kind of like the, the Pied Piper, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Great and, analogy. And I did mean that. You can get lost in like a week like we've had where we've talked about all sorts of different tragedies and you've got a, a, like a terrible homicide weekend that we have a three and like, you know, meth and you can, you can get lost in that. And so it's important to have that champion also saying, well, hang on, like, look at all the good things we're doing. And we just talked just uh, uh, in the commercial break about the forks opening up its patio and all the good stuff that is happening that you should celebrate. And so it's great that she's the cheerleader, so to speak. And it's not even the wrestling in the fair term. And she's like the, she's, she's the rallying the troops, you know? Yeah. And I don't want to brush aside any of the negativity and overhype the good stuff, but unfortunately that is sort of life in the big city. That's just the way it goes. Uh, right. B- big and cities and smaller communities have their pluses and their minuses, sure. uh, their crosses to bear and their problems to solve. Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. Very excited about this next segment because as I look outside the window here at Polo Park, we kind of look out towards the northeast. So I'm looking at Empress and just over the stores, I see Chapters and Additionnel and the shoe company. And there's... A huge blanket of green that's just emerged in the last couple of weeks. And as it pertains to this next book, Treed, Walking in Canada's Urban Forests. It just launched this week at McNally Robinson, and the book's author, Ariel Gordon, is here in studio with us. Ariel, good morning to you. Good morning. So this must have been a fun book to research. I'm going to go walk around and <laughs> hang out in the trees. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's 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 nice when your research involves... Um, Hey, let's go for a walk in a Cinnabon forest. You know, like like let's kneel in a puddle and look at a mushroom. You know, can't go wrong. <laughs> and so you did this. So you went from city to city across the country, or how did you pick where you were gonna do your walks? Well, for the most part, the book is centered in Winnipeg, and so in some ways, it's like a love story about Winnipeg's trees and Winnipeg's urban forest. But I mean, I did go to a variety of other places, but I'm such a Western Canadian girl, so I was in uh, Banff National Park. Uh, just outside of Riding Mountain National Park. I was in northern, northern BC in the Musqua-Ketchika management area. Um, and then I went to places like Langruth, Manitoba, and spent a week at a farm, a cattle farm, which was amazing and not something I'd ever done. And then, you know, Olha, Manitoba, uh, which is one of those little Ukrainian communities, you know, just outside, there's kind of in a, in a line just outside of Riding Mountain National Park. And so, so Winnipeg is so identified with and one of the calling cards of our city is the elm canopy. And that's the tree that we speak most about. I think the ash tree is working its way into the conversation, both for negative reasons. We'll talk about that in a moment. But you told us before we came on air the number of trees in Manitoba, or in Winnipeg, pardon me, and the number staggering. What is that number? Okay, so when we talk about an urban forest, we mean every tree on public and private land. So that's everything on the boulevard, in your yard, in a park, by the side of the road. So 8 million. And what I, I had a lot of trouble grasping that number, right? Like, how, what does that look like? And what does that feel like? And wow. so I tried to do things like this really rough math of going, okay, well, how many people do we have in this city? And how does that how does that work out? And it's 11 trees per person. That's incredible. I love that we're outnumbered. 10 to 1 by trees here. And that's not even counting shrubs. I mean shrubs. <laughs> that's your lilacs. That's your caragana. That's like your rosebush. You know, like trees. So have you, uh, how do you, I don't want to call you a tree person, but like you're mm-hmm. a tree person. You're into the trees. Has that been a thing since you were a kid? Or when did you start your love affair with the urban forest? It's funny. I was asked this the other day and I couldn't actually identify it. Like I love urban nature in particular. I like Everything that in the trees, I love the trees and everything that lives under the trees, and that includes even us. the worms, even the worms, mm. wormageddon. <laughs> um, and I had, do you remember that a couple oh, years ago? Wormageddon was not a fan of wormageddon. No, yes, yeah, no, I didn't love it either. But but it was only short lived, and it's like um, for me, I started out at Cinnaboyne Forest, you know, going for walks there, and it felt too big for me, and so I focused in on mushrooms and I started taking pictures of them, and they allowed me to sort of. Then as I got comfortable, I could sort of widen out and think about the forest as a whole. And so when I was writing this book, that's a lot to think about, right? Like um, history, uh, talking about climate change, trying to look at the history of the Métis and tree planting in the city. Like there's so many things to research and to think about. But So what I did was I looked at a Cinnaboyne forest 
because that's my beloved. That's the place I love and go to whenever I can. And then I sort of brought the focus back out to the whole city. Right. So, so I had both. I was able to use the Cinnabon Forest to help me to think about the rest of our urban forest. So when you think about that and talk about the history, the idea that a, a new tree being planted for every house built was a part of the city plan for a long time. I know in my neighborhood that still stands. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, if they take a tree down, they plant another one. If They've planted the wrong species, which happened in my corner of the city, and they're slowly replacing Mm. those trees. But if one comes down, very quickly they plant a new one. Assiniboine Forest, is it preserved forest or was it planted at some point? It's actually one of the only places in Winnipeg that's never been developed. At one point, it's sort of on the the edges of Tuxedo and Charleswood, like an an sort of agricultural, industrial Charleswood, and then like high-end Mm-hmm. middle-class housing. It's a proper forest. Yeah, it's never been developed. So at one point, they were trying to convince the U of M to set up there, and so they did these road cuts, um, and that's where the trails are now. But other than that, it's not been touched. And it was sort of, because it was sort of in between two municipalities um, for the longest time, it was kind of ignored. And so it, there's sort of some local dumping that happened there. So there's two old cars in the middle of the forest, if you know where to look. Wow. That deer sleep in, which is my favorite thing. They sort of bed down in, mm. in the old rusted out cars. Um, but yeah, it was protected at, a, at around the time that Unicity came in. So in the seventies, and then it sort of became protected. Um, and so it's, it's one of the only places where you can go and stand and feel like, what Winnipeg would have felt like before all this development, right? And I love it. And it's it's mostly like bur oak and trembling aspen, but there's a meadow that has wildflowers in it. And uh, and we see deer there all the time. We saw a moose there once. Yeah, admittedly, it was a moose that had gotten lost. Um, it wasn't doesn't normally live there, but still, I saw a moose in a Cinnabon forest. Well, Amazing. if you want to learn more about this, Ariel Gordon's book, Treed, Walking in Canada's Urban Forests, is available as a bestseller at McNally Robinson, correct? Just heard the news, yep. Congratulations for that. Thank you very much for sharing this story. I want to get my hands on that book because I love uh, the passion that you clearly have for our city and for its trees. We want to start this hour with all of the crazy weather that is going on in the United States. Brett, Loren, it seems as though every morning over the last two weeks we have news of another tornado or more accurately multiple tornadoes touching down somewhere in the United States. On Monday night, a large tornado struck Dayton, Ohio, causing significant damage to local communities and several other powerful twisters were reported in Ohio and Indiana. Here's Jay Gray from NBC News. Tornado on the ground. Panic overnight in the heartland. And I thought I was going to die. It's like out of a movie. But this horror is all too real. Multiple tornadoes tearing apart western Ohio. Daylight revealing the extent of that damage. Homes ravaged, trees and power lines snapped. Entire communities left in ruins. Frankly, uh, back in the neighborhood, there's areas that look truly like a war zone. The attack from Mother Nature has been overwhelming and relentless. The National Weather Service has confirmed at least 500 tornadoes over the last 30 days. 22 states have been affected by the string of severe weather. There have been 12 straight days of twisters, the last 10 featuring between 8 and 51 tornadoes each day. Now, process these numbers in your head. In Manitoba, we averaged nine confirmed tornadoes per year. And on Tuesday, a destructive tornado ripped through Linwood, Kansas, just outside Kansas City. Dr. Harold Brooks from the Severe Storms Laboratory at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, you might know it better as NOAA, joins us now from Norman, Oklahoma. Dr. Brooks, good morning. Good morning, sir. How are you doing? We're doing really well. More storms last night as well and, and more t- touchdown uh, tornadoes as well? Uh, yeah, there were the, the eastern Texas certainly had... Uh, it. It's problems last night. Uh, it looks like, fortunately, we're nearing the end of this uh, stretch of, of severe weather, though, and things will hopefully start to calm down just a little bit soon. What, what's contributing to it? Except, because I know we went through a few years in your part of the world where they would call it, maybe I'm using the term wrong, more of a dry spell. There wasn't as many, and now we've seen a real influx this year. Is there something contributing to that? Well, we've had a, a, a really favorable pattern for the last couple of weeks. And that essentially what we look at in the large scale in the atmosphere is having a, a, a trough of low pressure in the atmosphere that's persistent over the western part of the United States. Um, and these kinds of patterns happen occasionally. 
where they last for a week or two. Uh, fortunately, not very often. The, the last one was probably uh, the second half of April in, in 2011. Uh, and so it's, it's having this persistent, repeated uh, situation is probably something that we see, you know, once every five to 10 years. But it's kind of, it's really hard to, uh, to, to come up with good estimates of how often they have because they, how do you actually describe this, this kind of a big period is, is difficult. We often hear the term Tornado Alley, but for those who maybe aren't entirely sure exactly what comprises Tornado Alley, what, where, like, where does that begin and where does it end? Well, Tornado Alley is actually a, uh, uh, not a very well-defined concept. Um, we, we think typically of a, a region where there's a, there are a lot of tornadoes, but I think also when most people think of it, they also include things that um, the that the season's really well defined and happens almost every year. And when we look at that, it's a stretch of the, of the plains uh, in the United States, somewhere from uh, sort of the, the Dallas-Fort Worth area west uh, to maybe Abilene, Texas, then going north through uh, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, maybe the Dakotas, if you, if you think about it. But it sort of gets to be a little fuzzy as to how you actually define that. But this region that's maybe a few hundred miles east of the Rocky Mountains, uh, extending north from a few hundred miles north of the Gulf of Mexico up into perhaps even into southern Canada. Dr. Harold Brooks is from the Severe Storms Laboratory at NOAA, joining us from Oklahoma. And so, you know, I mentioned our totals uh, historically uh, around 10 confirmed tornadoes uh, touching down in Manitoba per year. What is it that contributes to this part of the world being so picture perfect for tornadoes? Is it combination of atmospheric and geographic com- uh, conditions? What, what is it? Well, in a large part, it's the topography that, that helps us define these things. And it's really the presence of the Rocky Mountains, this, this wide, high range of mountains that runs from, from north to south. And one of the big ingredients we look for when we look for severe thunderstorms is the presence of, of cold, dry air aloft, say, from a few thousand meters up to maybe 10,000 meters. And the best way to get that kind of an air mass up there is to run it over a wide, high range of mountains. And so the Rocky Mountains are there. Uh, and that provides that the moisture uh, at low levels uh, in in my part of the in the of the world that comes almost entirely from the Gulf of Mexico and having southerly winds from winds blowing out of the south, bringing that moisture up. By the time you get into the into the prairies in Canada, more of it comes from what we call evapotranspiration. Crops grow and essentially uh, and and transpire water vapor, and that comes up into the atmosphere, and that acts as a source for them. That's one of the reasons the season's a little bit later, uh, in typically in the in the prairies than it is down in further south. It's fascinating stuff, and the science behind it is fascinating. Uh, we had a conversation earlier this week about uh, 5G technology and the fact that uh, the, the bandwidth uh, that, that will be released and, and auctioned off could be compromised, or at least the uh, satellites that predict weather uh, patterns could be compromised based on this uh, ac- uh, this auction and using these, uh, these different uh, bandwidths uh, of, of transmission. How good are we getting at predicting these storms, and and how early are we able to do it to to give folks enough warning to to at least get safe? Well, I think one of the things that that happened about the, about this event, particularly this and this prolonged um, period, is is a really exciting thing. Is that we've just in the last few years, researchers have been working on techniques that we can at least we think for these biggest kinds of extended outbreaks, uh, we can actually say maybe two to three weeks in advance that the, the general region of the middle part of the country is going to is going to have a lot of activity uh, and we didn't we weren't able to do that even two or three years ago and this is really the first the first opportunity to do that and while we couldn't you know specifically say uh, you know like Linwood Kansas will get hit that far in advance we could certainly say that in the uh, in the the middle part of the United States there should should be a lot of tornadoes on the shorter range time scales our forecast of, of predicting the uh, that individual days and the general area on those days that things will be uh, active in is pretty good frequently up to about a week in advance now. Wow. And certainly are. Yeah, and we can, we can say that, again, now we can start to say, well, it's going to be Oklahoma, eastern Kansas. Uh, and uh, usually for big days, we get those most of the time, certainly out three or four days in advance, and sometimes, like I said, up to seven days. And when the storms are actually happening, our ability to warn on this on a particular storm is going to make a tornado or not make a tornado uh, is, you know, we're usually pretty good up to about an hour in advance right now, maybe well, 45 minutes. 
Dr. Harold Brooks from the Severe Storms Laboratory at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Dr. Brooks, thank you very much for this. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Before we introduce our next guest, a colleague of ours with something special that is happening this weekend. We got a nice email, Greg, did we not? We did, and uh, we just visited in the last little bit with Dana Spiring of Economic Development Winnipeg. She's the president and CEO. And one of our listeners, Loren, uh, took time to type out this email, and I, and I think we should share it with uh, our listeners this morning. Yeah, he writes that he just wanted to express my thanks to the Start crew for having Dana Spiring on the air He says there's no better tonic when feeling down about the city than to be able to listen to Dana with her positive energy. It's easy to get fired up and feeling positive about Winnipeg afterwards. And it would be so nice if we had someone like her for mayor of our city. Perhaps her last name should be changed from Spiring to Inspiring. Love it. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate that. You can always email us, uh, mackling at cjob.com, McNabb with two Bs, or is it five Bs at the end? Just two? At She's like, the look on her face right and now. And McGarry, if you can spell it, M-E-G-A-R-R-Y at cjob.com. Gary. It's not Mick Gary. <laughs> that's, that's his first name is Mick. His last name is Gary. Mick Gary. Just use Brett at cjob.com. Yes, with two T's. Gosh, so many extra letters in this room. Two T's, two B's. I get it. I have a complicated name, all right? It's a pain. What's your name? Brat McGinty? <laughs> yeah. Brad. Hey, as we get older, we all have aches and pains. I mean, depending on the position on w- in which I sleep, sometimes it just hurts to get out of bed in the morning because my back is wrenched. But you don't expect that kind of pain when you're a kid. And for some kids, it's worse than simple aches and pains. This weekend, Sunday, June 2nd at Assiniboine Park, it's the 10th annual Walk for Arthritis, and one of our colleagues is involved, Phil Aubrey from Power Mornings with Philly Joe and Kirby from our brother station, Power 97. Philly's son, Jack, has juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and will be on the walk on Sunday for Team Jack Aubrey. Philly's with us now. Philly, when did you first learn your son was dealing with this? 2016, so roughly two years ago. He, uh, We thought he had the flu initially, and... Uh, it, I'll be honest, it was terrifying because the flu lasted for probably three weeks and we were told on various visits to the doctor, he has the flu, he has the flu. And as parents, you're kind of like, ah, this doesn't seem like the flu. He, you know, he wasn't well. And then I guess because it all started early December, then around around Christmas, so around December 25th, 2016, he'd pretty much stopped walking. He was in so much pain. Like he couldn't get his clothes off without crying in pain and he's five years old at the time. So, and this is a kid who's usually super active, running around. You can't, you know, you can't get him to sit down. So it was a, a highly stressful situation for our family. So he finally got admitted to the hospital 2016, December 25th. And after two or three weeks, well, they diagnosed him right away with uh, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis um, and started, you know, but they have to rule other things out. So it was a stressful three weeks in the hospital for us, figuring everything out, meeting with rheumatologists once they figured out that, or they had an idea that that's what it was. Um, but it was nice to finally figure out that it was, you know, get a diagnosis. So we've been dealing with this for a couple of years now, but, uh, luckily through a fantastic rheumatologist and the arthritis society, which of course is why I've been here with you guys, the walk going down on Sunday, um, you know, he's been good. He's been, the, the recovery was slow. He had to see a, a physiotherapist, get himself back going again. He had to get his head at five years old, get his head around what was going on with him. I mean, he, it was terrifying for him. Um, but things have been good. Things have been good since we know this is in our lives. We know how to deal with it. And his recovery has been good. He's back playing hockey. He's back playing soccer, swimming, all the stuff he loves. So at five years old was when he was diagnosed. Yeah. So uh, when when you mentioned that you hear the diagnosis and you feel good because you at least you have a yeah. conclu- like a, you know what you're dealing with, but then the other part of you m- must be thinking like what what's he now facing like a lifetime of pain and all the things we hear about arthritis mm-hmm. and so that balance of trying to guide a child through that has to be pretty challenging. That's exactly what it is. Initially, you're like because. Anybody who's had a hospital stay with a child or, or any kind of hospital stay, they, they rule things out. So you hear words being thrown around, oh, he might have this, he might have that. And you, you know, you're, you're so stressed out. So when you hear, you know, it's it's rheumatoid arthritis, well, okay, I, we can deal with that. That's treatable uh, given all the things it could have been. That That's good. But then you're right. You, you go, okay, but what does this mean now? What kind of medication is he going to have to be on? Will this 
And as a kid, he's asking, can I play hockey, Dad? Can I still go to swimming? I love all these things. Um, so, yeah, then the reality set and of what is this all about and what's this going to mean to us. And uh, luckily, uh, as I mentioned, great people, great rheumatologists explained it all that, no, you know, he'll he'll get, sure, there'll be limitations and there could be limitations and there could be flare-ups and there probably will be. Um, he's been pretty lucky uh, since the initial diagnosis. He's been, the recovery's been really good. Um, but he's well aware of what this is and what it could mean. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of learning that goes on and figuring out just how active he can be and what it means and all that kind of stuff. My brother lives with arthritis and he went from, I think, at, you know, at young age, 19, yeah. which I thought was young at the time, 19 or 20, from this, you know, from the same thing you described, from everything's good to what the heck is going on with my body. Yeah. And he's since learned to manage it and he's doing great things with his life. But uh, my thought back then was, oh my gosh, you're young. Yeah. And now you're dealing with your kid, and, and that seems even younger. So is it a big surprise when you talk to people or share your story? Or is it, or am I just learning now this is just super common and all sorts of people at all sorts of ages? Well, it, I had never heard of uh, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis before 2016. Never, never crossed my mind. So, uh, yeah, it was a stunner to me that kids get affected by this and just how many are. I think I have some numbers. The Arthritis Society is great about this. 225,000 Manitobans affected by arthritis. Now, that's all kinds of arthritis, but through the Arthritis Society and things like the walk on Sunday, we've had a chance to meet so many kids and, and adults and different walks of life that deal with arthritis. And honestly, it's inspirational, right? Especially something like a walk, because here we all are you know, telling our stories, talking about what day-to-day -day is like. And, uh, and good for your son, too, to see like yeah. all the other people out there who are just, you know, yeah. life, life continues, right? He, he loves it. He, we call it Team Jack. We go out for the walk, and he you can tell. it's He really from what he went through, and he knows all about it. Like, we don't have to remind him about those three weeks in the hospital, um, all the needles he had to get and all the tests and everything else and all the doctors he met. It's no fun for a kid. Children's Hospital, by the way, incredible. But, um, yeah, so he knows all about it, and this walk means so much to him. You can just see it. He he beams like a rooster when we're out at it, right? He's leading the way for this. So. How do you manage his arthritis now, his symptoms? Well, you know, we... Uh, I'll admit I'm a little over the top. My wife is, uh, you know, let him be a kid. He'll tell us if something's bugging him. Um, I, I tend to, hey, is everything okay? You know, uh, your knees, let's do, we do little stretches with him. We make sure because it, he, as a child, especially him, he, I, I know the way he is. He, he won't want to tell us that something's bugging him because he he he'll think he's going back to the hospital or something. So, but he also might want to keep going too. That's right. right. He's a kid. Kids just want to go, go, go all the His time. His friends are going. He doesn't yeah. want to slow down. So I make sure, um, sometimes too much, that I, you know, hey, how's everything? How are you feeling? How are you sore anywhere? And and that's just uh, day to day life for us. Um, but as far as managing, he's pretty good. He's off medication now. When it first started, he went on a drug called uh, prednisone, which is a steroid. And actually, we look back at the old pictures, you gain a bunch of weight from that. Um, and he's like, geez, I don't even recognize myself. <laughs> but it helped him a lot. Um, but he's been off medication for a while now. And uh, I guess what they call uh, a form of remission with uh, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. So we've been lucky there. But we know that at any time it can flare back up. So we're well aware of the symptoms and what to look for and what to ask him. So, but, but it's been good. As good as it can be. Also, the fact that he was five mm -hmm. when this first came up. But you ended up in the hospital on Christmas Day. Yeah, Christmas Day. And, and that was the... For for my wife and I, that was the moment because we we kind of knew this doesn't this just doesn't look like the flu to us. I mean, there's there's normal aches and pains that come with kids getting the flu, but when they're lying on the couch and they won't get up and they're in so much pain that you're like carrying them around the house, that just didn't seem right to us. And then Christmas morning, which is the biggest day of the year for him, like he, he thought, you know, for any child, mm -hmm. it's he wouldn't get out of bed to come see his presents, he, you know, or whatever was going on with, with the Christmas tree and what Santa brought him. And we're like, you know, that's it for him not to even want to get out of bed, no matter how sick, you know, there's no flu would stop him from getting out of bed. So that was the moment where we said, we're going to the hospital and we're going to, you know, we're not leaving until we get some some answers on what's going on. And luckily, uh, and trust me, I don't blame, you know, Children's Hospital for thinking it was the flu. For a while, it certainly had all the characteristics, high fever, you know, aches and pains, and he was weak and all that stuff. But um, that, that 2016 Christmas Day when we brought him in, uh, the first doctor we ran into actually mentioned juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, that, that it looks like that to her. And 
my wife and I were like, what? What is this you're talking about? So they admitted him right away. They didn't like what they saw. And uh, that's how he got to spend uh, the next few weeks. But I think he was, it was a little hard for a kid that age to uh, process it all. But I think we were all as a family just really relieved to get some answers as far as what exactly we're battling here and how to go about it. Is that the image that sort of powers you through too when you're doing these fundraising oh, things yeah. in the walk? You can't help but think, even now if I think of a little boy on Christmas Day in a hospital bed. That, Loren, that whole process, that whole, because it last three weeks in the hospital and then three weeks sick before that, um, I, I think any parent can relate. It was extremely difficult. And I know lots of families deal with far worse and deal with similar situations, but it was a really difficult time to see your child laid up like that and not and, and not knowing, you know, what having a feeling but being told it's not serious, but yet kind of thinking, no, this looks this looks different to me. This looks like something different and serious. Um, that that was a tough almost two months. Uh, the recovery. You know, we were empowered by then. We're like, okay, let's tackle this. We can do this. But not knowing was the hardest part. So the walk uh, is money for research. It's money for... Absolutely, what, yeah. The hope f- that someday we don't have to deal with this as young kids. Yeah, exactly. Further help children and further research and figure more things out about it. Um, it it's everything. And I think it's also a great opportunity. You know, we're raising money. We're we're doing these things. But it's, it's for families that deal with this to get together and uh, tell their stories and, and be together for a day. It's just, it's a, I did it last year. I missed the 10th anniversary of the walk and the Arthritis Society, they do great things. The walk is beautiful. Um, second year for me, I just had all the mascots are out there. They've got prizes and bands playing and it, you can do 1K or 5K. Um, registration at 8.30, the walk starts at 10. It, it's, it's awesome. I can't wait for it. Phil Aubrey, a.k.a. Philly from Power Mornings with Philly Joe and Kirby on Power 97. His son Jack has juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and Team Jack Aubrey will be in the 10th annual Walk for Arthritis happening this Sunday morning at Assiniboine Park. Report to 55 Pavilion Crescent. We're getting people asking how do we make a donation to Team Jack. Walkforarthritis.ca is where you can find more info or you can email us. Once again, those email addresses, brett at cjob.com with two T's, McNab at cjob.com with two B's, or mackling at cjob.com. Or you can go gmac, G-M-A-C-K. That's the uh, front line in my Twitter handle and my Instagram handle as well, gmacwpg at either Twitter or Instagram. Brett, you're an amazing follow on Instagram. You should be throwing out your handle there for folks. Brett McGarry. Good luck spelling my name. Very, I guess. very creative. <laughs> Brett McGarry, and make sure you follow us, 680CJOB on Instagram. I'm actually going to put a link to Phil's donation page on our Instagram story. Hey, thanks for listening to the Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think. And hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.